0: Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, managing editor of The Glow Up, and today we're sitting down with artist and writer Aquake Emezi. Since their debut novel Freshwater came out in 2018, Akweke has been a true star on the rise in the literary world. All of their books, including the instant New York Times bestseller and indie bestseller The Death of Vivek Oji, have been finalists for numerous awards, including the Penn Jean Stein Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize, and the Orwell Prize for political fiction. Akwaeke has also been named a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, and this past June, Akwaeke was featured on the cover of Time magazine as a Next Generation Leader, Aquake's latest book is a memoir called Dear Sandorin, and I was so thrilled to get to talk to them about it. I had such a lovely time talking with Akwaeke, and I loved hearing their insights on the spirituality that's inherent in Blackness, how the trans community is not distinct from the broader Black community, and what they hope readers took away from their latest work. Now, for those familiar with the issue, you might also note that we briefly allude to the highly publicized rift between Akweke and fellow writer and Nigerian Timamanda Ngozi Adichie. We were grateful for Akweke's candor on the issue and on the complicated issues that come with fame and visibility in general. It was an inspiring conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So with that, I give you and Mezi.
1: Welcome to It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to chat.
0: You know, our, our listeners can't see this magical wall behind you. Um, <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to double back to it, but you're sitting in front of this incredible, I don't know if it's a cabinet or a red door or what's happening. And it just, it's, it's perfect. When I think about you and your work, it, it makes sense to me. But, uh, before we begin, we do have a little ritual here at It's Lit because this is a podcast about Black writers, Black books, Black thought, uh, we like to ask each of our guests to tell us one book or several that really, really inspired you, changed you, you know, transformed the way you thought about
1: uh, writing or thought. What was that book or books for you? That's a really difficult question to answer. I've been reading since I was five and like writing books <laughs> in response to reading books. Um, so I'm just going to go with what I've been reading most recently, which are romance novels. Actually, Ooh. I've been working through Talia Hibbert's romance novels. And I think people underestimate the genre quite a bit. I think that in a world that is as violent towards Black people as it is, that wants us to not exist, reading books in which our love is centered, in which you know that at the end of the book, it will be happy. Like it will literally be a happy ending. It gives you a soft place to land. And I think that we're deserving of soft places to land. I think that we're deserving of art that isn't centered around our pain or our trauma or our death. And I think that in reading these books that center Black femmes, you see what it's like to be loved. And it opens up possibility in the reader's lives to be like, oh, this is what it can look like. You know, even though it's, it's in a story, but there's so much about stories that, that are true and we can use that truth in, in our own lives. So I'm learning a lot about the possibilities of love just from reading romance novels.
0: Um, okay. So first of all, I love that, that answer and, and soft place to land or soft place to fall is one of my favorite phrases that I use often. So that, that resonates with me personally. Uh, you know, we had another incredible writer and well-known one, Stacey Abrams on this podcast not too long ago, uh, who, of course, Stacey is also a romance novel writer and she also advocated for the romance novel as an underestimated genre. So now you all are inspiring me to get into that, but. For now, we're going to get into this this incredible book, uh, Dear Sandrine. Um, I hope I'm saying it right. Dear Sandrine, yes, I, you you provided a, a tutorial online. Yeah, I looked it up, <laughs> 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 and uh, <laughs> and I was really grateful for it. And and you call this a Black Spirit memoir, and you refer to yourself as a Black Spirit in this uh, incredible piece, which really explores so much. I mean, you know, it's it's um. It's incredibly evocative. I think if there was one word I would use to describe this book, and I'm sure it, <laughs> I'm not the only one, it would be visceral, um, mm. both figuratively and in some passages literally. But you do this as a series of letters to, it seems, entities. I'm going to call them entities in your life, maybe both physical and non-physical. But tell me how this this began and, and where this work came from for you.
1: Thank you. Um, I've been... Working in what I now call spirit theory since the start of my career. Um, my first book, Freshwater, was really my first foray into that. And it was choosing to center in our realities. And in this case, in Igbo ontology, to look through my entire life through that lens. And the reason why I started doing that was because I read this book by Malidoma Somme called Of the Water and Spirit. And in it, he talks about how, you know, when African countries got colonized, it wasn't just that we lost our religion, we lost our language, we lost our cultures, and they were replaced by the colonizer's own but really what we fundamentally lost were our realities something that was real for like centuries and generations all of a sudden a bunch of white people showed up and said that's not real anymore what we say is real is what's real and and that changed everything and i really started thinking about that because We really, we look down on these indigenous realities. You know, we call them superstitious. We say it's backwards and say, you know, well, science is what's real. And yes, both things can be true at the same time. Agree. And I was like, well, what happens if we look at our lives acknowledging that the realities that our people had for, again, centuries and generations are just as valid, even if they're centered in something different. It's a spiritual thing. It's based in revelation. Because the thing is, when you look at our cultures, and when I say our, I mean literally every Black person around the world, you see that it's still in our culture. It's still these Ways of being that are deeply, deeply spiritual. It's still not being able to go out because your mom had a dream and, <laughs> True. and based on that, you're not going anywhere. It's still, you know, not, not letting people have your, like, have your hair, you know, not eating certain people's foods. It's, it's still a way of being. It's still real. And I think about these kinds of things that are real, whether you believe in them or not. Belief becomes irrelevant. And I wanted to start making work that was shifting toward that center, or really that was like holding that center because there's this Toni Morrison quote where she says that, you know, she stood at the borders, stood at the edge, claimed it as center and let the world move over. And I was like, what does it look like if we stand in our very Black realities and say, you know what? This is not something on the fringe. This is something that is core to us, that is intrinsic to us, no matter what it looks like in our various cultures. So with my work, I centered in my culture and I wrote Freshwater. And with Dear Senderan, I wanted to continue doing that. I wanted to write the way that I talk to my friends. I didn't want to change it for, you know, the reader in general, because quite honestly, when you work in this publishing industry, when they say the reader, they mean white people. Yes, clearly. And and (laughs) with Dear Senderan, I started arguing, like literally behind the scenes, I started arguing about that. Because I was like, when you say to reader, who are you talking about? My reader is a Black person who, whether you identify as quote unquote spiritual or not, by default, we all are. You know, it's part of the culture. You cannot be Black and not have that access to spirit. It kind of just comes with the whole package. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and in fact, you know, so my mother,
0: you, you, you were referring to, you know, this, your mother having a dream. I don't know if my mother's actually ever done that, but my mother is deeply invested in like metaphysical studies and always has been my entire life. And when I was reading Dear Sandrin, I, I found myself thinking about a lot of those metaphysical texts that I had been exposed to maybe like in the late nineties or the early aughts, because I felt that you weren't just, you know, you make this very strong declaration early on in the work maybe in, in in the opening pages where you you declare that you are a spirit you are an obanji which is um ibo mythology correct yes. um i don't even know if we want to call it mythology but <laughs> theology mythology whatever you want to call it but i i also felt that through this work you weren't setting yourself apart from us mere mortals as a, as a as a spirit you were actually inviting us to claim the spiritual within us as well. So what you just said really resonates with me on that level, because I think it would be very easy for people to be like, Oh, this is really esoteric. And they're telling us that they're a spirit. And so, you know, we got to set them over here, but we all have that, right? We all have that capacity to claim the spiritual. You also, you know, obviously this is a book. It's deeply personal. And, you know, you talk about so many aspects of your life. You talk about your upbringing, which is its own thing to overcome and is, is very, the way that you describe growing up in a place that has been ravaged by war is very interesting. You know, that, that the things that you become desensitized to. And I know that you originally were going to study medicine and the way that you describe, for instance, your own medical procedures is in that very kind of almost like detached clinical kind of way, even while you're obviously in excruciating pain. I I guess I'm curious to know like did you have an expectation of how we we black readers who who receive your work would would interact with that with those really really
1: really personal and really really again visceral stories Well some of it was you know for example growing up in Nigeria it wasn't it wasn't really war it wasn't war like I didn't grow up okay. in in war but it was just a lot of like political and ethnic violence Yeah
0: yeah. So, okay, so forgive
1: my context there, but yes, no worries. Um, both my parents are medical professionals. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. So I definitely grew up in a household where there was this engagement with flesh that was medical and and we really were in a very medical community. Like my best friend's dad was a doctor. My dad's best friend was also a doctor. We were around hospitals a lot. There was a lot of that clinical aspect to things. As far as the kind of the violence growing up and the way that we interact with death, I suppose, I think that's something that Black people all over the world can relate to. You know, like I talk to my friends who their families have been in Brooklyn for generations. And, you know, and I'm like, Oh, you know, I can talk about riots back home and people being burned alive. And they can talk, talk about like how many people were constantly being lost to gun violence. Like we know what it's like to walk with death. And the more that we walk through, especially in this country, and understand how much of this empire is quite literally fueled by Black death. I felt like the things I was writing about weren't necessarily going to be shocking, because we do have that understanding of our mortality. We do have that understanding that, you know, you can move around this country and you can die just for existing. And that is amplified when you're Black and queer, when you're Black and trans. And that's something where, you know, I realized that in doing the publicity for this book, I full-on just told the publicity team, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm only talking to Black people. Because (laughs) I just, I just, I wanted to feel safe in talking about the work. You know, it is very personal and I didn't want to be explaining to outsiders, essentially, things that are already understood within our community. And that has been, like, since Freshwater, that has been really one of my, like, hopes for the work, is that even though it's centered in, like, Igbo reality, it's still for and about Black people, I'm like, it's just centered there because that's my center. But I never wanted people to like approach Freshwater and just be like, oh, well, you know, that's African, that's Igbo, that has nothing to do with me. I'm like, no, the spirit stuff is all of us. Like we are all connected through it anyway.
0: I was going to ask you about your choice to uh, speak to only Black journalists, so I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, and thank you, by the way, for that, because I, I do feel that as a Black writer, as a Black journalist, we are often, even when it comes to our own writers, we often put on the back burner. Depending on who's representing that writer, that artist, or what their aspirations are, personally, we are often the last ones to get the call. So I appreciate that you prioritized us here. and And yes, I agree with you. I do think that we As Black people, we are in in a constant state of awareness about our mortality, and that is very familiar to us. But you also bring us on a journey here that I think we need to get more familiar with. And I think you're incredibly transparent in doing so and talking about basically the phases of your own transition and claiming a more genderless identity, you know, whether you present as femme or not, like this, this thing that we as Black people continue to struggle with. And I know you've done that privately. I know you've done that publicly as well. And obviously, just like we, you know, we love to throw around this phrase, like, blackness is not a monolith. There's no one way to be trans, in my, in my understanding, you know, and I think that those of us who want to be, uh, supportive, friends, allies, et cetera, you know, we're on our own kind of transitional journey. Obviously not, not on the same level, but just to understanding, is there something here, you know, because I know you've, you've, Spoken about this so publicly as well. What would you, what would you like people to understand about trans identity is particularly black people to understand about trans identity and, and kind of getting over there. I won't say our collective fear because I'd like to say we're getting better, but you know, we, we, we have some, we have some things, some blocks there. What would you like people to know?
1: Well, I think it's, it's important to note that Black people and trans people are not like separate categories. Well, um, right, <laughs> any more than you know, black people and women. <laughs> you know the thing where they're like, oh well, you know, which one, which part of your identity is like they ask black women this all the time. Like, you know, is it that you're a black person or is it that you're a woman? Right, right, right. Like, I have to choose feminism or choose blackness. And,
0: and yes, I agree with you. And I'm, you know, I hope I didn't phrase that in a way that inferred otherwise, but I entirely agree with you.
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's important to know that black trans people are already part of the community. Like, and those are the people that everyone should be listening to, especially Mm -hmm. black trans women. Um, I'm not necessarily the best person person <laughs> to to speak on it. Because interestingly, a lot of what my work is doing is holding a spirit for a center. And I think when Freshwater first came out, and when I first started writing about transitioning, I used human language a lot, which was, okay, trans, non-binary, at this point, like gender, And what happened was that People then started thinking that the spiritual stuff I was working on was like a, a metaphor for transness or that transness was like the center and the spirit stuff was like a way of interpreting it. And I was like, oh no, that's backwards. The spirit stuff is the center. I'm just borrowing language to try and process it because there is no language for a lot of the things that I'm writing about. And that's why I write about them, is to discover language about it. And when you don't have language, you try to find things that can approximate. And so for me, borrowing the language of transition was something that I could use and people would Understand it a little bit. And so there was this essay that I wrote in the cut in 2018 when Freshwater came out. And I put it in Dear Senderan as well, but I edited it to be more accurate because I realized that when I wrote it in the cut, I was still trying to explain things to outsiders. You know, I was trying to fit my existence into language that other people could understand. And in Dear Sandra, and I get to see how my work has grown in the years between then and now. It's like, okay, I can write this without expecting, without trying to make people understand. I can just write it the way that I think about it without masking, without diluting it. And so, so much of it was really, I'm changing my appearance and I'm changing my flesh, not to fit any other human gender, but to try and feel like the spirit I am while in a human body. So from a spirit center, I'm not even trans. I'm just you know, Obanje, for example, which have no gender, which have nothing to do, like gender is fundamentally a human thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Gender is a human thing. And in a spirit context, it does not exist. So I think that what I would advise for people to do, if they're looking for ways to be guided, is that there are so many Black trans people who are out there doing the work, God bless them, because I do not have an educational bone in my body. <laughs> I was like, that is not my ministry. <laughs> but there are people out there who are, who are doing the work and who are teaching and who are patients. I'm not. Who are, you know, like walking through and like building these bridges. And, and I think it's, it's important to, it's important to listen to them. And the other thing I think is that this is something that in my work, I think is really It's something I try to lean into is that sometimes we have to be okay with being the bad guy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like you have to be okay with looking at the dark parts of yourself. And I think that comes into play a lot where you see a lot of cisgender black people who cannot fathom that they might be the oppressor. Right.
0: Right. Right.
1: <laughs> and I'm just like, right. oh, yeah. you got to look at that. Like you got to yeah. look at, your sh- you got to do the shadow work, right? You have to look at the shadow side and admit that you can't always be like a blameless victim in things, that there are power structures that if you're only comfortable admitting they exist when you get to be the oppressed and you want to pretend all of a sudden these power structures disappear when you are the oppressor. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people have a hard time looking at darkness and admitting when they've been complicit in harming people who are more marginalized than them. And yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it.
0: You know, as a I, I I love that you said that, because as an outsider, so to speak. I love that you just, you kind of, I'm like, okay, so that just cracks something open for me that I did not think about before. So thank you for that. Um, cause I think, you know, again, even with our best and so-called best intentions, um, we all subscribe to that, right? We all do have these levels of things. Um, and I felt like this book also, uh, you did something. I think, you know, you said you don't have an educational bone in your body, but I'm going to disagree a little bit because, <laughs> (laughs) Uh, you did something for me as a writer in this book, which is that you really kind of give this, I can't even call it a pep talk. I I don't know what I would call it, but you do kind of give this inspirational roadmap, you know, that is in the very much in the spirit of, 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 I would say like a Morrison in terms of just like, do the work, just do the work, right? Do the work, have the vision be brave enough to, to envision something right. Bigger than yourself. And you talk about that journey, for yourself. Um, and you also talk about fame. <laughs> and and I, I feel like you are both embracing the tremendous success that you've had in such a brief time with your work, but also asking us to be very aware of, of the fact that everything has a price. And, you know, I know for you, that visibility has come, there's been a lot of costs there. You know, you talk in the book about How even, you know, what we're doing right now, like, you know, coming out, promoting a new book, like, this is grueling emotional work, right? Like, this is, you know, having to perform, basically. You're performing again and again and again. I know that you and your one-time mentor have butted heads publicly, and I know that that was a recent thing that came up. But what would you say in terms of navigating and negotiating with fame? What would you say about fame at this juncture in your career? You're still evolving. You're still growing into this thing and adapting
1: you know it's it's very much that double-edged sword you know i'm somebody who ever since i was a kid if there was one way to push my buttons it was to lie on my name like (laughs) i was just so fixated on things being true that I was incredibly gullible. Like, you could play endless pranks on me as a kid because I would believe anything. I would just be like... You and I
0: are very similar <laughs> in that respect, yes.
1: <laughs> I would be like, absolutely. Because to me, it didn't make sense. I was like, why would somebody I love lie to why me? You lie? <laughs> why would you lie? Why would you lie? So, you know, as, as I become more and more visible, it's been harder and harder to watch how the narrative of who you are gets spun into something unrecognizable. And I've been on the internet since like 2006, not as like an average user, but like as a visible user, like I was a blogger for many years. There are people who follow me now who, you know, followed when I had a natural hair blog for eight years, you know, like I've been on the internet for a long time. And I remember when it was a more genuine space like where i have friends that i just i met on tumblr and i met because we followed each other's blogs and it's been really i think heartbreaking especially recently to just watch how you become less and less of a person because now you're sort you're some sort of symbol and when you stand for the things That people like to punch down on, you know, when you stand for black queerness and black transness and, you know, all these ideas that are not so radical about, Hey, maybe we shouldn't harm each other. Maybe we should listen to the people we're punching down at, you know, and it all, it all gets twisted. I think that's been the part that I'm, I'm learning to sit with. I've become quieter. On social media because I realized that I was not a person there anymore, that it was just entertainment. Um, and I've been learning restraint, which is new for me. My friends are very impressed. <laughs> They're very impressed because I used to go on the internet and just cuss people out left and right. Like even the thing of the recent kerfluffle, where it's like that person is, for example, not my mentor. I'm like, mentor is okay. like a very specific term. I've been to countless writing workshops. I've worked with many teachers who have been way more invested and involved in my career. And it's one thing where I remember being on Twitter, you know, back in the day, and you just like clap back and forth with like people who were being homophobic, who were being transphobic. And now I'm just like, oh, these clapbacks are like involving the alt-rights. Like Pierce Morgan is chiming in on a clapback. Like it's a scale that's completely different. And it's part of the costs, right? Because when you have like the alt-rights involved, then for myself, I have to start considering things like, am I going to get doxed? Are people going to start mm. showing up at my home? You know, right. and, and you're dealing with like these, again, these very real consequences while hundreds, thousands of people on the internet are just laughing. And I find it so incredibly ugly, especially when the motive behind, at least on my end, the motive behind all of it is to, you know, just simply insist that trans women are real women. A very, very simple concept. And it spins out into all these things. And that's something I've had to think about with fame, right? Is that as the visibility Rises. What are the things I continue to stand for? Because no one really cares when you're like a relatively unknown writer, you know, in 2017 saying the same thing that I'm saying now. I've just been saying the same thing for years, (laughs) but the, the reactions are different, you know? And I had to choose at some point. I was like, okay, are you going to get compromised? Are you going to reach a level where you're willing to keep quiet because you don't want to stop your bag or because you don't want to deal with the pushback. And it just didn't sit right with my spirits to keep quiet. A lot of people encouraged me to in general. They're like, oh, don't give stuff your energy, you know, just move on. Like you're already living your best life. But my thing is I might be living quote unquote my best life. But when you have things that are happening that are affecting people who don't have the resources that I have, who don't have the protection that I have, you know, that whole controversy led to a nonstop storm of transphobia for days and days and days. And yes, I might be protected from that, but there are so many trans people who are not protected from that, you know? So it's still something that I'm learning to balance and it's still something that I'm, I'm learning to deal with and learning, okay, when to pull back, when to push forward, when to say the truth. And although I am honestly nervous because again this is only three years into my career like this hasn't started for real for real yet so but I I think I see it as like a learning opportunity it's like you find out who you are under pressure you find out who and what you stand for who you advocate for and so far I think I'm I'm okay with who I am I've handled things in a way that I'm like satisfied with. As you should be, as you should be. And I, I agree that it
0: is a work in progress. I, I too am getting more still and more graceful and less reactive. So I relate to all of that. And I related to something else in, in your book. And, and I, you know, typically don't close my uh, interviews this way, but I have to thank you for something <laughs> that happened in Dear Sandra because we started this conversation talking about romance novels and you, have a romance in this, in this memoir, uh, that you are very transparent about, you know, and, and kind of take us through the journey of this, you know, this very magical arc from beginning to end, to beginning to non, to very human, (laughs) very human. (laughs) And, and in doing so, uh, I, I, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who had this experience in doing so, I think that you tapped into something very universal about heartbreak and very universal about certain types of betrayal. And for me personally, as a reader, the reason I wanted to thank you is that I did not realize that I had not resolved that for myself until I read your book. And it was quite cathartic for me. <laughs> and when I when I read a book and it, you know, our, our producer Michaela knows that I do this, like, you know, I, I have these like woo moments, you know, or I, you know, or, or I cry, right. You know, or like, you know, if you make me cry in the book and I had to take a minute, I had to take a minute and have a good cry during this arc. And I, you know, I, I don't usually talk about things like that on the podcast, but I, it hit me in such a spot. And I I felt like you should know that. I felt like you should know that that was deep, that transparency was deeply affecting and I, I
1: and deeply healing <laughs> as well. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for sharing that, you know, because it was that thread in the book was incredibly difficult to write, um, incredibly triggering to edit. Because it's so raw, and it was so I wrote it's I triggering wrote, to read for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, look, part of me, I'm, I'm all. I feel affirmed when people are just like, "Yo, this book messed me up," because I'm like, "Me too." Yeah. You know, me too. It messed yeah. me up to write it. <laughs> I'm. We are all together yeah. in this. Um. But. But also just the empathy though, the
0: empathy of the pain. I felt like I could I could tell that was incredibly painful to revisit and. I, maybe that's why I wanted to tell you that I wanted you to know that you had empathy, that, that that was real for me as well. And I was like, Oh wow, you just like strummed my pain and sang my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I, I think, I think there's something, I think there's something so powerful in leaning into like the madness of a certain grief. You know, yes. I think that often we're expected to play it cool. And, and just be like, whatever, you know, like, don't give the other person the satisfaction of knowing how deeply they affected you. And I was just like, I do not have time for that. Like, I've always been like a really sensitive bunny. Like my parents said it ever since I was a kid. They're just like, you are so sensitive. Like they're like, don't tease them. Don't like, you know how they are. They're sensitive. And it was, it was like such a bad thing. Like people were so derogatory about it. Yes. Um, yes. And the, <laughs> again, the empathy. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the older, the older I got, you know, I, I realized how impressive it was to be that sensitive, to feel everything that much and still to get up every time that someone has tried to crush you for it. And also, you know what I've read, I'm really interested in people's like biographies or like memoirs. So like Maya Angelou's seven memoirs, Um, right. (laughs) Grace Jones memoir, the Alexander McQueen documentary that I write about in the memoir. So brilliant. So good. Yes. I'm about to watch that, um, the Mary J. Blige documentary that's on Prime right now because. Is
0: it weird that I'm scared to watch it? I'm a little scared.
1: It's not weird at all. I've been putting it off because I know Here it's go- go- it's going to do some things to my chest and I'm not I'm not it's quite gonna, it's going to be like
0: your book, it's going to trigger me and I'm like, okay.
1: But the thing I also learned from reading these people's stories was one that some of it was some of it was a map to, hey, this is how you deal with the high visibility, with the fame, with All of this. And, but the most important thing I think I learned was that in the course of time, it does not matter. You know, in like 30 years, you look back and you'll just be, you know, an elder just being like, Oh yeah, you know, I hooked up with so and so this other like famous artist. And they just be writing all that stuff. You know, Arthur Kidd is there talking about having threesomes with all these famous actors. And you, and it puts everything in, in perspective. And it also is a record of the fact that we lived in this time, you know, and that's something that I wanted to put into the book and be honest about is that, yes, I was involved with this other artist who completely devastated me and I wrote half a book about it and and so what? It's an amazing book. Um, and that is what, that is what life is, is complete with that heartbreak and the grief and the art that comes out from the grief and using the art to transmute that pain into something that can be of service to other people. You know, when you said earlier in the conversation that people can think that, oh, being a spirit means that you're placing yourself above, you know, mere mortals. I appreciated that so much because one of the things I've been explaining in the course of talking about the Ascenderan is that in Igbo reality, I talk about being a deity in the book because of being like the child of a deity, which is something I've covered in my work. But in Igbo reality, a deity is an entity that exists to serve the community. If the community finds that the deity is no longer serving them, they break up with it. They like destroyed a shrine and, and it's this idea of a lateral relationship between, you know, spirits in human form and spirits in deity form. And it's not, it's not a hierarchy. It's like we're all existing in these embodiments together and we may be having different experiences, but it doesn't mean that one experience is better than the other, or that one experience is more enlightened than the other. For me, the work is very much in service to a community. The things that I can do, the things that are world bending, the offerings that I can put into the work and be like, hey, this is how I made my world happen. I don't know if this spell will work for you, but I will give it to you because I want it to work for you. I want all of us To be able to shape worlds in which we're making our art freely, in which we're safe and loved and we have, you know, like you said, a soft place to fall into. And that is, that is the goal of things. And that is the thing that makes it, that makes it worth the costs of creating work like this. And I also want to say thank you for just this conversation because in the course of publicity for this book, I realized that talking to only black journalists changed the whole experience for me. It is not draining. It stopped being so grueling. I was like, oh, hold on a second. I can have (laughs) like this replenishing experience rolling out a book if I just hold the center in a black center. And I'm just like, I just want to stay in our world. I'm not interested in translating or outreach. I just want to stay among us because we are more than enough. And conversations like these, like this are, you know, they reinforce that for me. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: Oh, I'm so grateful too. Akweke, thank you so much for appearing on it's lit and, uh, and, and for enlightening me personally. Um, I, I'm, Again, I'm such a fan of your work and even more of a fan now after this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing yourself with us. Thank you for having me.
2: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
0: The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Myesha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Myesha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Myesha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. I have been digging into Seven Days in June. Now, yes, I know, I know, I know, it's July. But this book by Tia Williams, you know, I think it's it's right on time. You know, Akweke was talking about how they love romance novels, and this is a romance, and it's Black love, it's Black joy. It's really working through what black romance looks like for us. And I'm, I'm so glad that Tia wrote it. Um, I happen to uh, know Tia adjacently. So I'm, I'm really proud that she's back with this effort. And I'm hoping to speak to her soon on the show. But until we do, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Until then, keep it lit.